Hello and welcome to The Pioneers, brought to you in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. I'm Robert Bound. This series explores some of the most innovative ideas in science, technology, conservation, medicine and beyond that are making the world we live in a better place. Andrew McConaughey is a volcanologist, but you can also describe him as an inventor, teacher or an engineer. The Scot has been studying volcanoes for over two decades, focusing on technology that helps scientists remotely study what's bubbling away inside them. The sensors that he's developed give him a wider knowledge of what's going on underground and therefore help to forecast the signs of any future eruptions. McGonagall was an early adopter of the drone and as I enter his office at Sheffield University, where he's a lecturer, there are models of helicopters and various other homemade contraptions that he's come up with throughout his career to get into the mouth of the crater. Maybe we can go over here and have a look at how this works. Yeah, so this, this vintage aircraft, um, which now no longer has an engine, um, therefore may not be flying again at any point soon. This is the helicopter we used for the first drone-based measurements on, on volcanoes. Does it have a kind of place in your heart? Does it have a name? Does it have a nickname? Um, Did it get sworn at, at least, in the production cycle? Yes, it's been it's been yeah it's been, it's been spoke, many things. It's been spoken to in four letter terms previously. <laughs> um, I, I I I couldn't tell you its name without offending my wife. Um, well, actually, we're here today to talk to Andrew McConaughey about his work, how being a Rolex laureate in two thousand and eight opened up new opportunities, and where he draws his inspiration from. I've been working in volcanology now for the last fifteen twenty years or so. And at school, I really enjoyed studying geography and earth sciences, but I also really enjoyed studying physics as well. And I suppose that my real professional interest was to try and find a way of combining those two things. I grew up in Edinburgh in Scotland, which is a city built on seven volcanoes. So I spent a lot of time as a kid looking at volcanoes, which had long since ceased their activity. So I, I had this passion for the outdoors and I also had a passion for designing things and making things and bits of kit and instrumentation. And so my desire was to try and find some way of putting both of those things together. I was wondering if there was going to be an apocryphal tale. You're on holiday one day and you saw smoke on the horizon. But there was something about the topography of Edinburgh itself that made you wonder what was going on underneath your feet, I suppose. That's right. And Edinburgh is just such a visually compelling city to grow mm. up in from an architectural point of view. Beautiful geometry there in terms of building. And also every Saturday morning I used to go cross-country running and run around Arthur's Seat, which was a former volcano. Mm. So I think subliminally... I was drawn to volcanology from an early age before even understanding what any of it was about. I love that there's a sort of calling. And it seems you've sort of alluded to it in your first answer there, Andrew. There's a mixture of engineering, invention, teaching, and a mixture of various sciences as well. Is that a kind of fair balance? You're kind of juggling a few very interesting balls there. I think so. And I think one of the really lovely things about the direction of research and human knowledge right now is that the magic in many ways is at the frontiers. So much cool stuff is going on in the interaction areas between disciplines, which were previously rather disparate. And this is just so wonderful because it goes back to an earlier period when, for example, in the 18th century, many scientists would specialise in multiple fields and it almost seems as though we've, we're having a bit of a renaissance in terms of that kind of activity. So yes, I'm someone who's always really been curious about lots of different things 
And my training was entirely in physics, so I gave volcanoes and earth sciences a break for pretty much eight years before getting back into it again. But having that skill set was really useful in terms of coming into this new and yet old area. So yes, I'm very, I'm not necessarily a master of many different things, but uh, it's really interesting and fun to dabble in a number of these different arenas. And the physics bit, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. Some of our listeners will wonder that, you know, there's an eight year gap in your love affair with volcanoes and that side of the science and, and, uh, that you studied to do the physics. What does the physics bit in layman's terms, which element of your study and of your job is the physics part? One of the great things about physics as a discipline is that it's all about trying to understand things in the most fundamental possible way. So ultimately, if you look at any object like the table or you or the cup of tea on the table, there's a way of understanding that on the basis of physics. It's a really fundamental approach that you can use to understand any system, and that applies within volcanology. I think specifically in terms of what I do, a lot of it's very technological. So what we will try and do is take bits of technology which ultimately have come about because of physics, and then we try and think of a way of how do we appropriate that in the context of wanting to, to better understand how volcanoes work. And obviously there's a very physical side to this as well. There's the field work, which is the bit that most people, when they summon an image of a volcanologist in their mind, is someone peering Indy Jones-like, possibly over the mouth of a crater or into a crater. Practically speaking, how close do you get? What is the nature of the field work in your field of expertise? Well, it really depends. So, I mean, sometimes it involves going into the crater. Obviously, you need to be really careful about doing that sort that of needs thing. Some, that needs some theme music. <laughs> so, obviously, we'd do that with great caution and care, making sure we had radios with us so that if anything was going to kick off, we'd have good forewarning to get out. So there's been an element of that. But actually, what we try and do is to develop technology that you can use from safe distances from the target. Volcanoes are, as you allude to, not your average experimental setup that you might put on your desk, which you're far <laughs> larger than. In this case, we're much smaller than, than the experiment that we're looking at. So one thing we really try and do is, is develop techniques that you can use from safe distances away so that scientists can safely monitor volcanoes and also from the point of view of trying to monitor them to try and work out what's going on next. And that, I guess that's also where some of the physics part of it, I, we, we teed you up as inventor, engineer, as much as scientist or as well as mm -hmm. scientist. Maybe you can give us an idea of, and we are in a prop-laden office here, Andrew. <laughs> what are some of the things that you've come up with in order to, to give scientists, yourself and others, this yeah. safe distance from these angry volcanoes? Well, indeed, we are laden with props today. Um, <laughs> So what I've always tried to do is to try and look for technologies which are relatively financially accessible, which have been developed for something completely different. And then I've tried to think of ways in which we can appropriate them within volcanology, partly in view of the fact that most dangerous volcanoes are in relatively poor parts of the world. So there are limitations in terms of what technology is appropriate for being applied in that context. So I've worked on a number of different technologies, as you as you alluded to. I've worked with drones, trying to really kickstart the use of drones in volcanology. That's become really big over the last couple of years as that tech has advanced and become far more financially accessible. More recently, we've been working on effectively hacking smartphone technology to take smartphone sensors 
and then to adapt them so they can see ultraviolet light and then to use that technology to basically see the gases coming out of volcanoes. And we've been able to develop units on this basis for a build cost of hundreds of pounds, whereas in order to go into a scientific manufacturer and buy something that would do more or less the same job would cost more like 20 or 30,000 pounds. So it's partly about taking technology and it's also partly going back to my Scottish roots about cheap technology. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the job of these machines that you've invented, wonderful kind of one-off pieces of technology, unique things, are they to detect adverse sort of volcanic activity, sort of early warning systems for communities that live on the edges of volcanoes and cities? Or are they simply in order to I say simply, are they in order to study the gases in a sort of geological, volcanological way about understanding what is underneath the crust of the Earth? I think that's a great question, and the answer is both, really. So volcanology is an odd discipline in that everyone knows what a volcano looks like. Everyone knows that it's a point in the Earth's surface where all this stuff comes out of, which can potentially be very bad for the people living nearby. But to understand, really, how volcanoes work, you have to be able to look underground, which takes a bit of ingenuity because mm. with our eyes we obviously cannot see underground so the intention behind these technologies is to measure the gas release the gases are released from underground magmas therefore by studying these released gases we gain inferences to what is going on underground so in answer to the question it's partly about understanding but in fact as we understand more that then helps us in terms of forecasting as well because every time we see a volcano do something which then leads to an eruption, we get a clearer idea of what the next one might do in advance of the next eruption. So the two are very, very interrelated. The more we know, the better position we're in in order to be able to see the future, if you like. And actually, on that idea of sort of early warning, sort of the safety aspect of this, as it were, where does the funding for that come from? You know, as you say, you've mentioned that it's often in poorer countries or poorer parts of countries. Where is that funding coming from? Is it a, a civic, a federal matter? Is it a local mm. governance funding thing? Because people would be surprised to know that there's, yeah. in certain cases, kind of no planning around these potentially fatal eruptions. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the availability of funding to support infrastructure on potentially dangerous volcanoes varies widely depending on where you are in the world but yeah most governments will have a budget to resource their volcanoes in terms of monitoring instrumentation the r&d in terms of developing the equipment is something that has been funded for example here i mean we've had funding from rolex for example to do this kind of work british research councils have, have been very active in funding this as well italian research councils too and there's been a lot of great work going on in japan and in the states as well so a lot of the R&D has been done in those sorts of countries. But then individual countries with these dangerous volcanoes will have budgets then for instrumentation. So at the moment, we've got contracts in place with Chile and also with Peru to basically sell them some of our, our technology mm -hmm. so that they can use it in terms of their infrastructure. And you mentioned the Rolex. You were awarded the Rolex Award for Enterprise back in 2008. What did that sort of practically allow you to do in terms of some of the technology that we can see in your, your office here or just your general ability to move around the world and make your experiments. Mm. So the Rolex funding really helped us in terms of, we had this idea to use drones on volcanoes and this was really new. At that time we were just working with 
basically a, a, a stunt helicopter and adapting that for this. So that funding helped us to push that technology further. Nowadays, a lot of people have been using drones in terms of volcanic activity. It also helped us to start going on our on the subsequent technology, which was related to the ultraviolet cameras, which in their most recent incarnation, we've developed in this smartphone format that I was explaining earlier. So the funding's been really useful for really pushing further one technology and then kickstarting another one. And I want to get back to the, the field trip. We don't have to be peering nervously over a crater of a volcano, although you are miming it beautifully <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about some of the field trips. You've had an awful time having to go to Stromboli and the islands off Naples and presumably some fairly awful, ugly, That's cold right. and rainy parts of the world. Indeed. Andrew, how have you found the research as a volcanologist? Challenging. <laughs> well, my wife calls, in fact, I'm sure she won't be listening to this, but my wife calls these man's holidays. Okay. <laughs> I think she's possibly alluding to the fact that she's looking after the children by herself. Um, no, well, apart from the pizzas and apart from the red wine and apart from the spectacular vistas, yeah, it is. It is quite challenging. Um, no, it's it's great. It's it's really great. I mean, not all volcanoes are as beautifully positioned. Yeah. Indeed, there are other volcanoes in the world. We have a project right now. Some colleagues have taken our gear to the South Sandwich Islands okay. in the South Atlantic near uh, the Falklands down there. So that's a good example of less picturesque place to do volcanic research <laughs> and I'm not on that trip well we shouldn't read too much into that <laughs> I no, I think it would be fair to say I'm a warm-blooded volcanologist okay um, <laughs> and tell us uh, talk us through some of the kit what are your packing essentials when you other than a towel and some factor 30 <laughs> poor you um, but when you go on a research trip on a field trip what are you taking well we have to take our monitoring gear which is normally these ultraviolet cameras that I've described earlier we have to have batteries, so we've got to think through lithium batteries and how we get them on planes and how not to get arrested or detained in strange parts of the world. There's always all sorts of vagaries concerning customs, importation and things like that that we've got to think through as well. Drones, if we're taking drones, we've got to think about how we get them through customs and things like that as well. Yeah, just sort of standard southern Italian gear if, if I yeah. get to go on the field trips that I want to go on. Is your technology complete, completely sort of computerized? Are your sensors just fed into something digital? It is it's all being processed as you work in the field. We're exactly. not out there with kind of old-fashioned scientific hardware. No, exa yeah. exactly yeah. right. So back in the old days, I mean, one way of doing these measurements was to take glass bottles and then go up to holes in the ground that gases were coming out of and then collect these, mm. take the gas flasks back, analyze them in the lab which is dirty volcanology. We're, we're far cleaner. So yes, so our instruments would be mounted on tripods looking at the volcanoes, and then we'd be controlling them using laptop computers, and the, the data would come on stream, so we'd know exactly what's going on in real time. And we sort of alluded to this earlier, a mixture between the world of scientific research and a sort of bent towards the humanitarian element to this, these early warning systems, a way of educating presumably people on the ground in countries where this technology doesn't exist, how to safeguard themselves. Which side of the seesaw are you in, or maybe you're somewhere in the middle, in terms of that humanitarian versus sort of pure science? Where on the fulcrum are you? Hmm. I've used the word fulcrum wrongly to a scientist. 
No, no, I like the word. Fulcrum's a good word. We should we should dwell on that. Um, <laughs> could be painful. Yeah, um, let's not dwell on the fulcrum. Indeed, less. That's right. I don't work for a volcano monitoring organization, so that's not my. In terms of forecasting eruptions, that's not my professional skill set. So it would be dangerous for me to stray into claiming to be an authority. And so far as that is concerned. So I'm very much more on the scientific side of things, if, if you use that, mm. that terminology in terms of the, the fulcrum. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the motivation behind this, my interest has always been in trying to develop tools that people will find useful. And it's not just to do with this. I worked once for a startup company that made glasses that were affordable glasses with adjustable lenses with the intention of these being widely available in the global south. I just like the idea of trying to develop stuff cheaply that, you know, is quite disruptive technologically that might be helpful and enabling to people. I think even philosophically, I just think solving problems with technology, I just find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I kind of sense that, that that this is the sort of tip of the iceberg for you, actually, that these it's the invention, it's the making, it's the solution, finding the solution to these things that's kind of good. Does this happen in terms of your sort of scientific and invention inspiration? Where does, do you have sort of hot spots where this happens? Do you still kind of go on cross-country runs? Is that good for the good for stimulating the grey matter, or is it are we sitting in the nexus here in? At McGonagall Mansions at Sheffield University. Just watch what you touch, please. <laughs> <laughs> I find, yes, now that's just such a good question. Yes, I do still go running. That's partly to stay sane, given the three small children that live in my life, who again might be listening to this, who are absolutely wonderful. I find that, yes, inspiration often strikes, and I try and go running every day, partly for that reason, so well done for plugging into that. Thinking about this whole idea of inspiration, I think, and this might not exactly answer your question, but now is just such a good time to be an inventor because we've got these brilliant things coming on stream now, like 3D printers, where you could basically 3D print anything. And so from a design point of view, that's just absolutely incredible. Design software on computers, really cheap, readily available computational hardware, for instance, through Raspberry Pi computers and that and that sort of thing. And the fact that you've got kids in secondary school and primary school who are learning how to use all these all these things. So I actually I now take inspiration from watching what my children are doing in terms of the tech they're getting into. And then I think to myself, hold on a minute, we could use that for something completely different. And it's amazing because I I was amazed by the possibilities 10 years ago and I was amazed by the possibilities 20 years ago and the possibilities now are just so much greater than they were at at both of those points. Well, it's obviously how your mind works. It's a happy thought that you stay enthralled and interested because it's people like you that make people like us go, wow, this thing exists now. So thank you for that. But it is true. I wondered about the... We mentioned the Rolex funding, which is sort of an an actual thing. But do you, in your kind of more harebrained moments, when you're thinking of solutions to problems, do you think that actually you need to tone down an idea to make it fundable? Do Do you have to put yourself in the sort of position of the funder rather than the fundee sometimes in order to be able to explain things to the people with the money, but maybe not with the expertise? 
we've been really fortunate recently in terms of funding and that people have come to us and they've asked us to build X for, for purpose Y. So that's been just fantastic. This has all been done through the university, but those clients have come with briefs that are in keeping with what we want to do. So we've been really fortunate in that sense. You're right. Leveraging funding is always something that takes a certain approach. It's important in business. It's important in, in the university. Regarding Rolex, obviously, we went through a very exacting process in terms of getting funded in the first place. And, and since the initial award, they've, they've provided follow-on funding as well for a follow-on project that I did concerning something a little bit different. What I find with them, though, is that there's a very special relationship there. And when that relationship has been established, there is a degree of latitude in terms of what you can then do on the basis of trust. So that has actually helped us. So, for example, this UV camera idea was a bit of a punt and, and Rolex helped to push that forward in a way that a number of other funders, I think, didn't because I think they didn't see that it was going to be useful and it turns out it's been really useful. So, oddly enough, for an organization and a brand, which in many ways is quite conservative, and I mean that in a really positive way, there's huge vision and foresight as well to recognize things that often other parties just didn't see. Now you mentioned your three kids, and it seems that you're very good at translating complex ideas in an accessible way, which is part of being a, a scientist in the public realm, I suppose, the semi-public realm. How do you talk about what you talk about? It seems like it comes very naturally to you. Do you think in a very scientific way and then translate it into layman's terms? Or do you think in those terms? It's just a bit of a strange question but I wonder whether you there is a certain way of talking about it with your peers that is that is uses a certain language and expertise but actually it is essentially a problem-solving exercise always mm. I think I mean I'm interested in languages anyway just you know different like French and Italian and I think it's just You've got to know how to order those ice creams somehow and that bottle of Barolo haven't you Bira gelato <laughs> wow that's good, isn't it? It's very good. Do I pass? Do <laughs> <laughs> you speak Italian? <laughs> Always. Gelato. Yeah, me too. I guess the way I normally think about it is you say the same thing, but you just use a different word. Don't tell anyone from Sheffield University I said this, but one of my lectures that I give to the students here is exactly the same lecture I give to primary schools when I go. I just take the words out... And I use different words when I describe the narrative. So probably I just say the same thing, but I just sink in a word or sink out a word. I'd never really thought about that before. But thank you. But on the children, do you know, it's fascinating. I was just talking to them the other day. And I don't know if, you know, your situation, if you've got kids or anything like that. But I've met lots of really fascinating and interesting people in my life. But the three people that interest me the most, I think, are my children. Maybe just because of the way they see things, because they see something for the first time. And that's something that we very rarely get to mm. do. That is sort of the essence of the scientific mind, isn't it? The inquiring mind is to never lose your curiosity, never lose that childlike sense of wonder. You can obviously have to translate it not in a childlike or a childish way. Indeed. But that's kind of part and parcel, isn't it? It must be kind of yeah. strangely inspiring to be able to cast yourself through the eyes of some kids like that. Yes, because I suppose, as you say, riffing with that idea for a second, 
there's a point when they're literally doing science every day because every single observation they make is, is a first for them. It's just that at a certain age, they've got the capacity to do something spectacularly idiotic. And I noticed on your wall, you've got a letter from a school kid. Maybe you can, maybe you can read it out because it is a beautiful piece of writing and a very honest question. Well, this is um, a charming letter from Chloe Monday from Ensham Community Primary School, Beach Road, Ensham. And she writes the following. Dear Dr. McGonagall, with three N's, my name is Chloe Mundy. I'm 11 years old. My class have been studying tropical islands this term. We've been looking at different geographical features that appear on the island. But there's one thing that intrigued me the most, dot, 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 volcanoes. Seeing as you studied volcanoes, I would like to ask you a couple of questions. Firstly, what got you interested in volcanoes? Were you a young child studying it at school? Another thing that I would like to know is, if you put something like washing up liquid into a volcano, would it erupt straight away? And why would it react that way? Would it react? Secondly, the thing that I would really like to know is, if you got boiling hot lava onto your body, what would it do to you? And would anything burn or even <laughs> fall off like one of your arms? <laughs> I know it's a bit gruesome, indeed but I would really like to know. Lastly, have you ever lived near a volcano and did it erupt whilst you were there? How did you feel? In my personal opinion, I would feel extremely scared, but as you're an expert, I think that you would know what to do and probably wouldn't be phased at all. I would appreciate it if you took the time to read this letter and I would be very grateful if you could get back to me. Yours sincerely, Chloe Monday. Well, Chloe certainly put me out of a job with those wonderful questions. Oh, brilliant. That's great, isn't it? 2013, Chloe Monday is probably at university now. Yeah, she probably is. It's great. And just before we finish up, Andrew, I wanted to ask you about a sort of passion project that you have. In terms of your work, if money were no object, is, is, there, some, is there something that you would love to achieve specific? I don't even know whether you'd like to commit it to tape, but... Well, you know what I mean? I wonder if there is some, you have a real grand projet that, 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 that you would love to see realised. How many ice creams is this, is this information worth? <laughs> well, we can back the lorry in and we can pay you an ice cream. <laughs> well, there's a project which we're working on right now and we've got so far and I'd love to be able to take it further. So I mentioned earlier that we'd done work on basically adapting smartphone technology to, to be able to take some really inexpensive sensors and make them UV sensitive. Well, NASA reached out a year or so ago to say that they were interested in using this for a unit, basically for lunar exploration. And so we partnered with them to implement this sensor within one of their instruments. And the idea behind this is to look for something in the atmosphere, if you can call it that, of the moon, which basically reveals the presence of water on the, on the surface of the moon. Anyway. We partnered with them on that project, and the prototype that they developed worked on Earth. Now, the team's very busy trying to get further funding to see if they can push this further. The NASA team? Yeah. yeah. It would be simply wonderful, President Trump, if that project <laughs> got funded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's not a bad one, is it? I think so. It feels like also some of the... I suppose this often happens in science 
that that you look for one outcome or you're trying to find a solution to a problem or a question and you find the solution to two other unrelated questions while not necessarily finding That's the right, right answer That's do right. you find this yeah. is this a this is a generality but do you find this yeah. within your yeah, level yeah. of research i think so and i think as well because I suppose one of the things I've really been interested in is how do we measure things, which on one level sounds a bit boring, but when you get into it, you realize this is really cool because as soon as we can measure this, then we can find out that. And so that's been very much what I've found. When we've solved one measurement problem, which is relevant to one discipline, often someone else will then approach us to say, actually, we could use that for this. And then all of a sudden you start talking to some completely different people. So yeah, I I love that. I find that very interesting. So what's the what's the sort of mecca for volcanologists? We mentioned Japan, Italy, different places, but there must be a place that where which is sort of the the classic place where you have to you have to visit to be a master in the field. Well, I think there's a few actually, but I think the the Italian volcanoes, Stromboli, Volcano, Etna, are really important because they've been so implicit in the development of the discipline. Of course, Volcano, that's where our, our English word volcano comes from um, in terms of the Latin in the beginning. And so much of our understanding has, has come from there. And there are just so many Italian volcanologists to, to, to boot. So I think Italy is a, is a really important place. And then Hawaii as well. Um, I was in Hawaii 18 months ago during during a big eruption with huge lava flows like I'd never seen before. And honestly, being there, I saw activity I'd never really seen before on a scale that I hadn't seen before. So I almost felt there as if I was viewing volcanism for the first time. And what's that like? In a, I mean, as a, as a as a punter, if you like, but also as a scientist, when your scientist is this specific discipline, to be in the middle of an eruption or in the aftermath of an eruption, knowing more than anyone else almost, uh, is that is it a strange position to be in? Well, I think I think there there is an element of truth in that, but I think there's also a massive sense of humility in that. In a sense, it doesn't really matter how much you know. Okay, you may know more about this than other people do, but you're still faced with this colossal force of nature that could wipe you out at any at any point. So, yeah, I suppose there's a degree of responsibility, but there's no no hubris whatsoever. A sense of, um, I think, I think being in a situation like that maybe helps us better understand our place in the world. That was Andrew McGonagall, a 2008 Rolex laureate. We'll be back next week with more insights from some fascinating people with groundbreaking ideas. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher for Monocle 24.